welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Eric Fines. Uh, I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, and today I have the privilege of talking with Dr. Pedro Del Nido on the topic of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Dr. Del Nido is the chief of cardiac surgery at Boston Children's Hospital and the William E. Ladd Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Del Nido, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure uh, to be here and. Um discuss um, interesting cases and interesting scenarios. So we'll start with a basic scenario. Uh, you're notified of a baby boy being born with a prenatal diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. This had been de detected at 25 weeks gestation by fetal echocardiogram, which noted no identifiable left ventricle, mitral and aortic atresia, and an unrestrictive atrial septal communication. The baby is now at 30 weeks gestational age and undergoes an uncomplicated delivery uh, weighing about 3.4 kilograms at birth. How might you expect this child to present immediately after birth and what might be some of the physiologic or anatomic factors that would contribute to that presentation? So if, if the baby is 38 weeks and he's born essentially at term um, and, and a pretty good weight and, and size, um, most babies are quite stable. They're, they're, they really have very little in the way of problems with delivery. Um, they're <clears throat> usually they, their right ventricular function is, is excellent and that's why they got to term. Uh, and so they manage this physiology quite well. Shortly after birth, however, oxygen saturations are going to not be normal and that should be the first thing that people detect. Um, the concern here is is that this is ductal dependent systemic circulation. So the only blood that gets out into the body has to go through the ductus and that ductus will start to close relatively soon. So the, the, um, while the babies look very, very good early on, um, the goal on the immediate um, postnatal period is to uh, start prostaglandins to maintain the ductal patency. And, um, uh, and, and maintain peripheral perfusion. One of the quick ways that you can determine um, how well they're being perfused is just check for femoral pulses. They should be very easily palpable. If you're having a very difficult time palpating them, then I think you have to consider whether the ductus is already getting restricted. But other than that, the, the first step is to keep the ductal patency and then get an echocardiogram, confirm the prenatal diagnosis. Uh, just before moving forward with the case, let's assume that the baby did have this prenatal diagnosis, but uh, it was known uh, in advance that uh, the atrial septum was either highly restrictive or intact. Uh, would, how would this change the initial presentation and management uh, of, of, the, of the baby? So the concern here is that if the child does have mitral atresia, all of the pulmonary blood flow will need to cross over to the right atrium uh, in order to decompress the uh, pulmonary circulation. In the fetal stage, uh, there's very little uh, effective pulmonary blood flow, and so the, that whatever can get through the interatrial septum um, uh, usually doesn't cause problems. Uh, but immediately after birth, and I'm talking within minutes, uh, as soon as the lungs expand, 
pulmonary resistance drops, you get anti-grade flow into the pulmonary arteries, the, the children will go into pulmonary edema. So it is a true medical emergency. Um, and in, in today's world, with the availability in some centers of um, fetal intervention, um, there is the possibility, and this has been documented, that you can do transuterine uh, stenting of the interatrial septum prenatally in order to decompress the, uh, the left atrium. So the baby is born and, let's say, does have an intact atrial septum and is taken directly to the cath lab, uh, undergoes balloon atrial septostomy with stent placement. Uh, the procedure goes uneventfully. The baby is now brought back to the uh, intensive care unit and stable on prostaglandins. What are some of the signs you look for in that baby to make sure they're well perfused and that their circulation is adequately balanced? The problem, this is an unrepaired uh, baby with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, so the balance of circulation between the pulmonary and the systemic is entirely dependent on the degree of pulmonary vascular resistance. As the pulmonary vascular resistance falls, they're going to get preferential flow in, into the pulmonary vasculature, robbing blood flow from the systemic, and you'll begin to see uh, decreased peripheral perfusion, the babies will be cold, uh, they'll be mottled, they'll have very weak femoral pulses, typically they'll start to get a, a metabolic acidosis, lactic acidosis, uh, and if you don't do something soon after that, um, they, they, will, they will typically have a cardiac arrest. So you have to try to anticipate that this is going to be a problem. Do maneuvers that manipulate the pulmonary resistance in an appropriate way. If the child has had an intact atrial septum and has a lot of pulmonary edema, obviously they're going to need mechanical ventilation, they're going to need oxygen. On the other hand, as soon as the, there are signs that the lungs are getting better and there is more pulmonary blood flow, and that usually is detected by their systemic saturations, um, then you start, have to start cutting back on, um, on oxygen, cutting back on things that would drop the pulmonary resistance, and then start planning for when you're going to proceed with a, with a surgical intervention. Are there any surgical interventions that you would uh, pursue in the case of a child who is overcirculated, uh, and uh, and that's despite measures, medical measures, to try and manage the pulmonary vascular resistance. Well, in most cases, the pulmonary vascular resistance takes a few days to drop, and so you have time to plan the the more definitive procedure. On rare occasions, for a variety of reasons, if you need to delay the open heart procedure and you don't want to put the child on bypass, let's say they have a suspicion of a cerebral hemorrhage or something of that nature, then um, you can control pulmonary blood flow by mechanical means, which is pony, pulmonary artery bands, banding each branch pulmonary artery uh, to restrict pulmonary blood flow. So the uh, baby is doing well in the ICU, uh, doesn't seem as though there's any issues with the balance of circulation. Uh, you had mentioned that the next step would be to get a, a postnatal echocardiogram to confirm the diagnosis. Can you describe uh, the specific anatomic features that you'd be interested in on that echocardiogram? Well, first and foremost is to ensure that, in fact, the, the diagnosis is a single ventricle and, and what that ventricle looks like and how well it's working. Because at the end of the day, that's probably the biggest single determinant how that child will do in the initial procedure as well as the long-term palliation. So determine the, the ventricular function, AV valve function as well. Some of these children will have tricuspid valve regurgitation. 
and that actually impacts on the risk of the surgery. Technical issues that relate to the procedure itself, which is the Norwood operation, um, that are important to note is the, the um, size of the ascending aorta, whether they have aortic atresia or not. The assumption is that they will have some degree of hypoplasia of the arch. You want to recheck to make sure that the interatrial septum has enough of a, of a defect so that there's no significant gradient across that uh, interatrial septum. And are there any other diagnostic things that you would want done aside from an echo? Uh, sometimes people talk about cath aside from just for uh, uh, addressing the interatrial septum uh, or any other uh, workup that you would want. There's no indication for cardiac catheterization other than for an intervention. So if you think that the interatrial septum is restricted, then yes. Um, but otherwise, it, most of the anatomy, in fact, virtually all of the anatomic features that you need in order to decide the, the surgical plan can be obtained from a good echocardiogram. Uh, and, and in fact, some would argue that there's a disadvantage to going to the cath lab because of the hemodynamic manipulation that's done at the time of cath. Um, and it's not without uh, a risk. So you've completed your workup, which confirms the diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. The baby's uh, most recent echocardiogram demonstrates uh, severe ascending aorta and arch hypoplasia with retrograde uh, blood flow, um, a large patent ductus uh, with right to left flow and systole, and a patent foramen. Uh, uh, I should say with a stent uh, across the atrial septum with flow across that that's uh, unrestrictive. Some mild right ventricular dysfunction, mild tricuspid regurgitation, and normal pulmonary venous connections. Uh, you're talking with the family about the next steps. What do you tell them about different options for management and what you would recommend? So what I first talk to them, make sure they understand the implications of having a single ventricle, uh, both short-term and long-term that uh, this is uh, um, in the best we can offer is palliative procedures. However, those palliative procedures can, um, can usually be done successfully and most children have a fairly good early prognosis. In the first one or two decades they usually are, are fairly normal children. However, there are factors that impact on that, um, particularly at the first stage, which is the highest risk of all the procedures. If there are anatomic features that make it higher risk, uh, such as an intact septum, or if there's ventricular dysfunction, AV valve regurgitation, all those are known risk factors, and I inform the parents if we find them. They need to understand that, that um, the goal of the first stage procedure is really to maintain the balance of circulation between the pulmonary and the systemic. We're going to restrict the pulmonary blood flow uh, by how we provide the flow into the lungs. And in some children, uh, that may be through a Blalock shunt. In other children, it may be through a right ventricle to pulmonary artery conduit. Um, there, although there are theoretical reasons for choosing one versus the other, I think most, uh, most centers believe that they're relatively equivalent. And, and, um, but it is critical to make sure that, that the size of that pulmonary uh, blood flow connection is appropriate for the child. And it may require adjustment in the early period after surgery. Not infrequently, we do leave the sternum open um, because of edema from the bypass, but it also gives us fairly rapid access in case we need to adjust the size of that, uh, of that conduit. One of the uh, things that sometimes is talked about is a hybrid approach for, uh, uh, for this problem. 
Can you comment a little bit about that uh, when it's used if and its, its appropriateness? So the hybrid approach is um, it, it refers to the idea that you can maintain a balanced circulation um, without doing the Norwood operation and by banding the pulmonary artery branches and um, stenting the arterial duct to guarantee uh, systemic perfusion. Um, there are centers who have very good experience with this and, and that, that is their primary uh, method of managing patients with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I would say they're in the minority. Um, the hybrid procedure uh, is equally technically demanding to the, to the Norwood uh, in the sense that the size of the pulmonary bands uh, is, is, is critical. Um, and uh, often the position of the stent is quite critical. Uh, frequently the stent crosses the, um, the uh, transverse arch and that can cause problems with retrograde flow into the head vessels. Are there any clinical or anatomic scenarios uh, in a child born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome where they would end up going down the transplant pathway as opposed to single ventricle palliation? The transplant pathway generally is reserved for children who have uh, ventricular dysfunction uh, and, and um, um, because the anatomy is usually fairly standard in the sense that they have hypoplasia of the left sided structures including the aortic arch and that we have technical ways of getting around and, and, and fixing that problem so it's really primarily for ventricular dysfunction. So. Uh, Back to the full-term uh, newborn uh, who's been stabilized in the ICU, you are now going to be taking the, the baby to the OR for a Norwood operation. Can you describe conceptually the goals of the operation, but also uh, walk us through how you'd conduct the surgery? So the, the first step is to discuss with your colleagues in anesthesia what the plan is for induction, uh, maintenance of uh, ventilation. Uh, and control of, of uh, pulmonary circulation during the period initially uh, before you actually start the, the, um, the procedure itself. Uh, and in, a, in a center where they do a number of these procedures and are very accustomed to it, then anesthesiologists are, are very familiar with the maneuvers. You, you want to limit the amount of oxygen you're going to administer these children. You want to maintain an oxygen saturation that's sort of in the high 70s to low 80s. Uh, make sure you don't volume deplete them and um, in, in the, keep control over their peripheral uh, resistance to some degree. The second uh, step is you're going to want to uh, anticipate the changes that are going to occur in the child after surgery. So you want to have a protocol uh, that you worked out with your critical care um, uh, colleagues as to how you're going to manage this child. Um, there are a number of ways that people have developed for managing children after a Norwood operation. I would say the one that we use here is a protocol that was developed by the Toronto group, which is a, a vasodilation strategy during bypass and then controlling the, the peripheral resistance in the early period after, after surgery. That's, just, that's one way of doing it. There are others, but you at least need to have a plan for that, um, how you're going to manage that in the, in the early period. Um, because inevitably, the size of your conduit is never perfect. It's either always a little too big or a little too small. And even if the actual tube size you picked is correct, there may be technical problems with your anastomosis, 
that result in 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 um, either cyanosis or sometimes overcirculation. So plan that ahead. As far as the technical part of the procedure, you're going to basically divide it into the three steps. Uh, the first step is dissection and access to the structures that you're going to work on and planning for how you're going to cannulate. The second stage is what the actual reconstruction is. What are you going to, what are you going to connect to what, how are you going to enlarge it, and, and what steps are you going to do in what sequence. And then the third stage is coming off bypass, uh, how you're going to manage and make decisions about adequacy of pulmonary blood flow as you come off bypass. So if you take those in, in sequence, um, the decision as to where to cannulate the aorta depends in great part on the size of the aorta. Most of these children have very small aortas, and so the options are you can either cannulate the main pulmonary artery and slide your cannula through the ductus, with a plan to snare the ductus around your cannula once you go on bypass so you don't have pulmonary overcirculation. Or what's becoming more common nowadays is actually to sew a graft onto the innominate artery, typically a three and a half millimeter graft of Gore-Tex, and then cannulate the Gore-Tex graft and use that as your arterial access. Sometimes if you're going to leave a Blalock shunt, you can use that same, uh, same um, Gore-Tex graft uh, as, uh, as your, uh, your Blalock shunt. The venous uh, is fairly standard, right atrial appendage, um, and, and uh, the structures that you need to have access to is, is obviously the duct. You want to have the branch pulmonaries out dissected, but you really need to have most of the, in fact, all of the transverse arch into the descending aorta. So you want to have, you want to go beyond the ductus, typically at least five millimeters and ideally maybe a little bit more. That requires mobilization, and I think that, that's the part that people are most uncomfortable with, mobilizing the descending aorta. And you've got to get, uh, have a, a, a technique for, for doing that. There are ways to do that without uh, um, uh, injuring the very fragile ductal tissue, um, but you've got to get that part down. The bypass, uh, once you're on bypass, the repair techniques, you're going to patch the, uh, the uh, transverse arch and descending aorta. Uh, a variety of options as far as material, how you construct the patch. The, the, I would say the, 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 the mistakes that people make are that often the geometry of the patch uh, is not well thought through and they end up with a patch that's either too large, sometimes too small, or there's a kink in it uh, which causes uh, obstruction. We know that you want to uh, get, go beyond the ductal tissue and in fact, ideally, resect the posterior shelf in the descending aorta so that there is no ductal tissue. Um, and that's the, re the technique that I would recommend, is to resect that and then do a back wall in the end connection of the aorta. Uh, and then in the front wall or the underside is patched with whatever your favorite material is. Um, as far as what material, I typically have used pericardium, autologous glutaraldehyde treated pericardium. Uh, I know many surgeons prefer to use uh, pulmonary uh, artery homograft because it's elastic and, and uh, relatively hemostatic. Um, others will use pericardium, bovine pericardium. I don't, I don't know that it's, there's any one advantage uh, of one versus another. I think it's the surgeon's choice, but whatever it is, you want to be comfortable with it um, and, and make sure you've got your technique down. And then the final step is when do you do the atrial septectomy? Uh, and, and timing it so that it doesn't uh, limit you as far or, or extend the circle rest period unnecessarily. Um, managing the arch can be done 
in most cases with regional perfusion. Um, and, and especially since now the technique of putting a graft on the innominate is so common now. Uh, if you don't like to put a graft in the, in the innominate, you can always slide your cannula into the innominate, and that's another way of doing it. But I think most centers have adopted regional perfusion, limiting the circulatory arrest period to as little as possible. You do need to have circulatory arrest to do the atrial septectomy well. I would say the, a couple of uh, tips or tricks. Um, often finding the interatrial septum um, is tricky in these kids. And, and uh, understanding the anatomy, their left atrium is small, the interatrial septum is quite thick, and I've seen even very experienced surgeons get themselves into trouble. Uh, they, there's, there's no real advantage to making a small right atrial incision. Um, you might as well, some, sometimes surgeons like to do it through the purse string and the right atrial appendage. I would say if you're very comfortable and you can see the interatrial septum well, then go through the right atrial appendage, put a sucker in, and cut out the septum primum. Uh, if, if you're in doubt, make a right atriotomy and, and, and look at it directly. Um, you, you'll, you'll avoid a lot, of, a lot of hassles and a lot of trouble, particularly in kids that uh, have a very thick interatrial septum. If you know ahead of time that the child, let's say, has, has presented with intact atrial septum and has a stint, you've got to get that out. Uh, don't trust the stint. Uh, I, I, I make it a point to take it all out uh, and make sure you have a widely patent interatrial communication. The extra minute or two that it takes you to do that is well worth it. Um, the final step is coming off bypass. There I think you have to be very happy that your uh, conduit, whether it's RV to PA conduit or a Blaylock shunt, at the distal end is, is actually um, um, unkinked. And, and, and any difficulties with um, saturation, you, you've got to look at that area very carefully. So you've completed the operation, the baby's brought up to the intensive care unit. You had mentioned before that there are various strategies, generally speaking, for managing uh, these children in the early postoperative period. But from a very pra uh, technical level, uh, are, there, are there specific blood pressures you aim for, filling pressures, oxygen saturations, blood gases are the, uh, that you can give as sort of rough guidelines for what you're aiming for in that an early period following surgery? Yeah, so, so if, if the babies are adequately perfused, then the rule of thumb is the oxygen saturation should be somewhere in the high 70s to low 80s. And that tells you that um, you're relatively well balanced. By the very nature of the operation, the QPQS is more than one-to-one. Uh, in, in fact, if you shoot for a one-to-one, -one, these babies will be hypoxic and will require an early intervention. So typically they're a little bit over-circulated, but that's handled usually pretty well um, as long as you've, you, know, you haven't overdone it. So typically um, I'd want to see a saturation around the, the, that level. Um, and I think we follow very, very closely the blood gases. Uh, so we know whether they're developing a metabolic acidosis or not make sure that we're not um, either underventilating or, or hyperventilating them uh, so that the CO2s are relatively normal. And then finally, uh, follow lactates. The lactates are a very good early sensitive indicator. Often these children will come out with a lactate that's elevated out of the operating room, but it should relatively quickly start to, to stabilize and fall over the subsequent six hours. If that's not happening, more often than not, the, the cause is pulmonary overcirculation. Mm -hmm. 
So the baby undergoes an uneventful recovery. You had left the chest open at the time of the uh, stage one and closed on the second post-operative day, leaves the intensive care unit on the 11th post-operative day, and then has an uneventful floor course uh, with an echocardiogram uh, prior to discharge that shows good RV function, mild tricuspid regurgitation. Um, your arch is unobstructed, uh, as is your uh, RV to PA conduit. Um, you are nearing discharge. What are some of the things you tell the family about the next several weeks or months, and how long can you tell us a little bit about the lead up into the next stage in their palliation? So I think most centers nowadays have a mechanism for following these patients closely at home. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's a well-known risk period in that interstage period between the, the Norwood and the, and the Glen. Um, and there is a significant mortality. Um, it's typically associated around periods of dehydration, but it can also occur uh, for other reasons. Um, but it's important to monitor the child on a daily basis, monitor their weights, make sure that they're, they're uh, taking in enough uh, fluids, um, any kinds of, any, anything that would interrupt with that, such as a viral illness, gastroenteritis, uh, those children should be, there should be a very low threshold for taking that child to their local um, um, uh, emergency department or to be seen by their local cardiologist. Uh, we send them with an oxygen saturation monitor so that they, they have to be trained in how to use it, how to read the numbers, and, um, um, and, and then given parameters as to when, uh, when are numbers that are of concern and uh, someone should be, uh, should be contacted. Uh, otherwise, the babies are generally treated like any other babies. They should be feeding normally. They should be, uh, their level of activity should be just as any other child. So a deviation from that uh, should be a cause for alarm. And how long do you wait before proceeding with the next operation? Uh, and, and as a follow-up to that, what evaluation do those babies get prior to the next, next stage? So those babies should be seen uh, regularly, typically initially uh, almost weekly, uh, and then you can space it out once you get beyond about a month or six weeks. Typically, we are the goal is to is to get out to four to six months of age to do the next stage, but it's really largely driven by their oxygen saturation. And so, if their oxygen saturations are falling um, and they're getting close to that range, then I think consideration should be given to. Uh, First, cardiac catheterization, measure their hemodynamics, make sure that we understand why the, uh, why the saturations are falling, and then uh, plan for the, for the gland. Well, Dr. Del Nido, thank you very much for taking the time today to discuss this important topic with us. My pleasure.